Welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. My name is Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast, number 214. Starting from version 1, we promised to speak about problems honestly and openly. A couple of hours ago, we lost access to the public part of our infrastructure, in particular to the blog, payment server and CDN servers. At the moment, these servers cannot be accessed via SSH, and the hosting panels have been blocked. The hosting support service doesn't provide any information except at the request of law enforcement authorities. In addition, a couple of hours after the seizure, funds from the payment server belonging to us and our clients were withdrawn to an unknown account. Well, that didn't take long. Just a week after the DarkSide ransomware for hire group burst from the dark web to the headlines in connection with the ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline, the gates appeared to have come crashing down. In a message to a private forum on Thursday, the group said that its blog, payment server, and CDN servers had all been seized by law enforcement and that cryptocurrency from a dark side controlled payment server was diverted to what's described as an unknown account. There's other news that suggests the cybercriminal underground is getting skittish about ransomware groups now that the full force of the U.S. government appears to be focused on rooting them out. Reports out Friday claim that the Russian cyber hacking forum XSS had banned all topics related to ransomware. What happened? We invited Brandon Hoffman, the CISO at the company Intel 471, back into the studios to talk about DarkSide, a ransomware group that Intel 471 has followed and profiled in depth since it first merged last summer. In this case, Brandon says, DarkSide may have bitten off more than it can chew, attacking a target, the Colonial Gas Pipeline, that managed to put it squarely in the crosshairs of the U.S. government. In this conversation, Brandon and I talk about DarkSide, from the group's emergence last summer to its business model, as well as what we can expect from the group going forward. So we're here today talking about the big cyber news of the week, which is, of course, the attack on the Colonial Pipeline, pretty important piece of infrastructure that most of us probably didn't know existed, but that brings um, petroleum, uh, gas up from refineries in the Gulf Coast to uh, the Northeast, and it's been shut down uh, in a ransomware attack. So the attribution for this has been made, and uh, the word is from the FBI anyway, that is the Dark Side Ransomware Group. Your company has done some work profiling that group and its activities just from your observations online. And we're going to talk about that, but we were talking before the show, and one of the things you said is we actually... While we've had attribution, we don't know that the dark side group is actually responsible for this attack. Talk about why, in your mind, there's still reasonable doubt. Yeah, I mean, there's a, I wouldn't say there's a lot of reasonable doubt, and I certainly don't want to countermand the FBI and their you know, great team over there. Uh, it's just interesting because certainly the with ransomware operators, you know, the name and shame situation has kind of become the status quo. And certainly DarkSide is no exception. The, the doxing sites and the, the leaks that, that accompany um, ransomware attacks, right? Exactly. Yeah. There's these name and shame blogs, right? Where they say, hey, this is who we've got. And if you don't pay, then blah, blah, blah. Right. And DarkSide is no exception to that rule. In fact, they released something earlier today about another victim. Now, what's interesting is that Colonial has not shown up on that. And in fact, they made a little of their own press release, quote unquote, about how, you know, they're apolitical and, you know, they want to vet future victims to avoid social consequence. And so I think this is a very interesting nuance here where ransomware affiliate groups are wanting to now potentially check the affiliate victim list 
to make sure that it's not somebody that will put them in the light that they don't want to be in. Right, right. So I was looking at the um, the Onion site for for Dark Side, uh, and you're right. Colonial does not appear on there, although there are other energy sector firms on there. There are a wide range of firms that, that they target. Colonial is not one of them. Generally, would there be some lag between when an attack took place, which presumably was last week, and when they would appear on the dock site or the leak site? Or are those thing, do those two things usually go hand in hand, the uh, springing the ransomware and posting the stolen data on the leak site? Yeah, I mean, every group's a little bit different, right? I mean, I think there's no hard and fast rule that says, you know, once you've been encrypted, then you show up on the on the blog, right? You know, I think generally people say you're given an opportunity to pay. Once you don't hit the first deadline, then the doxing begins or DDoS or, you know, other things start to take place. And every group's a little bit different. So I think with this particular instance, it's almost like a reverse attribution where they're saying that they don't want to have social implications from their victim victimization, but they're not saying it was colonial. But I think that probably what they're saying is that they don't necessarily want to have their affiliates attack critical infrastructure or the government. <laughs> kind of uh, having having the tiger by the tail a little bit. You don't you don't want to pick a target that's too big and that gets you unwanted attention from yeah. entities that are in a position to to uh, do you do you harm, as it were. You know, maybe we don't want to, in, you know, send a ransomware attack at the Pentagon, right? Exactly. Maybe not, not a good choice. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which gets to the question, like when organizations like the FBI um, do attribution or, or affirm, you know, like FireEye or Intel 471, I mean, generally what, what would go into that? Would they merely be looking at the dropper and the ransomware itself um, or, and the, maybe the command and control infrastructure or like... Is it would it be a whole package of things that would go into that attribution? Yeah, it's a whole package of things, truthfully, and it and unfortunately it gets a little bit nuanced because of the affiliate situation, right? So if you're a ransomware, if you're a RAS provider, right, then you're providing a service, but you're not providing the victim, you're not providing the initial network access, you're not providing the lateralization, lateral movement, right? So the chain leading to the actual, the eventuality of ransomware being dropped, you know, there's, there's certain sets of TTPs that can be tracked and, and kind of trend according to RAS groups, right? But because it's an affiliate, an affiliate can kind of get there however they want. Now, that being said, there are some indicators that where, you know, once we have so many points of convergence, like you said, you know, this technique was used for initial access. This technique was used to move laterally or escalate privileges or whatever the case might be. There's enough around that to say, okay, it's probably this group, right? My understanding is always with these ransomware as a service or RAS, as you call them, that the same group is running the back end of these. And as you said, it's the affiliates are really, they bring the suckers in, as it were. They're the ones who are doing the initial compromise, whether it's vulnerable, you know, public facing web application or compromised um, employee credentials, whatever it is, you know, that's where the affiliate comes in. But once they're, once they've got that toehold, they kind of hand things over to the pros, as it were, the, the ransomware group itself. Is that always the case or does that vary as well? Uh, no, I mean, that's generally the case when you talk about ransomware as a service, right? And that's one of the key indicators, right, is how was it encrypted? What type of encryption was used? 
what's the format of the notification? Is it the same, right? What are they requesting? The, the, the ransom note itself. Exactly, yeah. right? I mean, it's all written, you know, it's all very canned, you know, many times canned. Yeah. Um, you know, all these guys, you know, the, the, the benefit of the ransomware as a service provider is they've built the encryption technology and all that, right? So that can, to a degree, be fingerprinted, you know, and, and, and compared. But as you say, that there are many in, in the attribution stuff, definitely when you're talking about kind of nation state attribution, you know, was this the Russian government or did they have a hand in this? When you're talking about affiliate ransomware groups, that really gets thorny because, of course, their affiliates could be anywhere in the world, the people who are hacking the victim in the first place. And then once they're brought into the to the operation, um, you know, that person's kind of stepping back. So. <laughs> My guess is that type of geopolitical attribution is very thorny in in a situation like this. Yeah, I mean, the blurring of the lines, so to speak, between nation state activity and what is classically referred to as cybercrime activity, right? Ransomware traditionally is cybercrime activity, but we see a lot of nation state activity, you know, leveraging commodity tooling and some potentially, you know, using cyber criminal activity to fund other nation state activity. Yeah, that does get a little bit tricky because of this kind of loose set of affiliation and the initial chain of attack can be dramatically different. So when we're talking about this dark side group, what can you tell us about dark side as a ransomware as a service operation? Uh, how long have they been around and what's their rep? It's actually quite interesting. I mean, they kind of debuted, so to speak, middle of last year. They made some significant, what would be called an escrow deposit on forums, and that they later increased to a significant degree, meaning this is probably not, you know, an immature group or actor who's just starting up, right? This is uh, somebody who knows what they're doing, prob- potentially, you know, used a different handle before, and we just haven't had a chance to kind of triage that. So these forums, in other words, you need to make a down payment or an escrow payment to participate in them? Yeah, exactly. To make transactions, essentially, between different places. It's almost like a vetting mechanism, so to speak. And so, you know, they, they made some interesting claims at the beginning of this year. They did a technology update, quote unquote, right, in the first quarter of this year. Um, they have some kind of high profile affiliates, people, you know, other threat actors that are, I don't want to say well-known, but known to a certain community uh, to have had success. Um, And so when you attract uh, affiliates like that, you probably got something quote unquote good going on. And you know what I mean by good for for their, for their side. Yeah. (laughs) Bad for, bad for everybody else, but yeah, sure. Bad for everybody else. Right. Um, But we do see, you know, there's really nothing unique about that initial chain of attacks that the affiliates are using. I mean, it's kind of classic, you know, vulnerable Citrix or RDP, then kind of traditional Cobalt Strike, Metasploit, kind of lateral movement stuff, escalation of privileges and things like that, using public exploits. And then, of course, that's where Darkside then comes in and does their thing. So that, you know, that in that case, they're not necessarily novel or unique. Uh, but what, you know, they've they've gotten quite a bit of notoriety in a very rapid amount of time. One of the reasons is they seem to be kind of publicity minded, you know, from the, I know, I know when they first announced themselves, it was, they had a kind of a press release on some of these forums announcing the company. It was like their their angel round or something like that. And then they've, they've made a couple other kind of PR type moves. One was to say that they were going to be donating some of their proceeds of their criminal dealings to charities. 
And the other was to make this uh, kind of statement of principles in which they said they would not attack, you know, hospitals and schools and other types of uh, infrastructure. Apparently, you know, petroleum pipelines, not part of <laughs> that scheme. But so kind of uh, cultivating this Robin Hood type image, but clearly, you know, with an eye to either public relations or I don't know, maybe it's just relations within the cyber underground where they're trying to recruit affiliates. I'm not sure which. Yeah, it, it's definitely that's part of it. Marketing, so to speak, right to those people having that kind of they're not the only ones who have this kind of like Robin Hood claim slash mentality. It's also, you know, this is all technology driven, right? So if they have good technology, you know, these all have a management panel, the more features they add to that and they advertise those features. So, you know, having not just a name and shame blog that's got notoriety, but also being able to, for example, supply DDoS capabilities and having features in that panel to do automated call outs to pressure victims all those kinds of features, they would call them features, right, is what will attract actors who know what they're doing and have had success to use their technology. Uh, just like you or I would choose a known service provider, you know, you're, you're going to take your car to the dealership because they got a proven track record to fix your problem, as opposed to the guy down the street who just opened and has zero stars on Google, for example. <laughs> So they've got some automation built in around the um, customer interactions. Uh, that is, you know, you know, getting the um, getting the victim to pay up, and they, they've automated some of that via their platform. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All those things make it easier, right? Yeah. Kind of more more push button. I've heard also that they do um, that. There's some some sense that they are are sort of picking their targets. That they do some research on their victims understand, first of all, who they are and how wealthy they might be in order to calibrate the ransom amount to what the company seems likely to be able to pay um, without too much pain, I guess. Is, is, is there any, is that unusual or is that also pretty typical? I would say that that's an emerging trend. I think, you know, ransomware itself, I think we should, is a bigger conversation about the fact that it's it's really no longer a cybercrime problem that it's really a national security issue. But that's not the question you're asking me is really understanding, doing the research needed to say what's a reasonable amount that I can extort from a company, right? Shows quite a bit of maturity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. As does the sort of infrastructure around the whole operation, right? I mean, just there. Ex yeah. Yeah. The desire. I mean, if you think about it, like from a sales perspective, if you're selling something in in one market and you want to expand to another market, you have to know what that market can bear. Um, that's, that's the sign of a mature economy or a mature service provider is understanding what level of success they'll have and forecasting it. <laughs> can we talk about what this means for U.S. critical infrastructure? One of the kind of sobering notes of all this is that while the magnitude of this attack seems to be large and that, you know, gas prices may increase in the eastern United States as a result of this pipeline being shut down. That, as you said, nothing about the way this particular group operates or these campaign operates is all that new in terms of the initial attack vectors, you know, how they're able to move laterally and, and gain, you know, a, a go from a, a toehold to maybe a wider uh, control of an organization before they launch their ransomware and, and so on. And yet you have these highly sensitive, critical companies providing critical services that seem still 
very vulnerable to these attacks. I guess, what does that tell us about just the level at which awareness of these threats has penetrated into the critical infrastructure sector here in the U.S.? This is a big conversation. And I think, you know, the notion and critical infrastructure is no exception to the rule that kind of generally ransomware has been somewhat written off or ignored as kind of just another commodity malware problem. But the reality is that when you when you connect all the dots together, you know, you realize there's a whole economy of people that are making this ransomware attack happen, right? They're, they're making it possible. You know, it's it, it's not just cybercrime, quote unquote, right? I mean, there's there's a whole level of visibility that's available if organizations want to understand it and take the time to progress their mindset kind of past this APT1 mentality, let's just track nation state. The chain of events that has to take place for ransomware, which is the end result, to take place successfully, there's so many opportunities to put a control in place to prevent this from happening that it's kind of staggering to think about the fact that it continues to go on and a lot seems like there's not a lot of connecting of the dots, right? Like there's, I mean, there's a broad economic impact that could take place here along with, you know, some national security implications. And yet it seems that it's just like, well, it's just another ransomware. But, you know, ransomware was the end result. In order to get to the ransomware, they had to get into the network. They had to get privileged access to the network, move all around, extract large volumes of data, and then put ransomware in. So if, you, if they've done that, what else could they do, right? That begs the question exactly right. You know, what else could they have done if they weren't financially motivated is the eye opener. But I feel like, you know, it's kind of like nobody's really talking about that part. Another point would be we don't know if this ransomware or the dark side group at any point had access to the ICS and SCADA uh, network that Colonial almost certainly operates. But in some ways, I guess this proves that it doesn't really matter because they were able to cause a disruption even if they didn't have access to that, right? I mean, Colonial has shut down its pipeline out of maybe just out of precaution, but a shutdown is a shutdown. So I think the idea that, well, if it's just the IT network, it's not a big deal. I think this would probably put the lie to that, that notion as well. It's straightforward. I'm not necessarily an ICS, you know, threat expert. But I would say that there is some consideration there around, you know, traditionally the guidance has always been separate IT and OT, right? And if OT is completely segregated, then IT goes down, you continue to operate. But to your point, what happened here, I think we don't know, at least us in the public don't know enough to make that claim. But certainly there's some indicators that uh, maybe more needs to be done, or maybe those protections weren't there in this particular case. And I think one concern is that, you know, again, you've got a cyber criminal group operating out of either Russia or Eastern Europe or both. We don't know whether there is, whether there are lines of communication between those nation state actors and the cyber criminal groups that basically, let's admit it, they allow to operate from within their sphere of control that might say, hey, look, what washed up in our net, you know, or are you interested in this, right? I mean, that those types of, of um, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, uh, there could very easily be something that, that takes place. Absolutely. Look, I mean, this is not an official opinion, you know, from the company, but, you know, certainly you think to yourself, hey, if you're a nation state actor and you want to just see what, how somebody's going to react, you know, from a warfare perspective, you, you know, you send a scout out. So, you know, hey, let's drop ransomware instead of taking it down. Let's see how they respond. Is it a smokescreen? 
I mean, we don't know, right? But but there's plausible deniability there for sure. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, the big the big question for you know our listeners are by and large IT professionals, so they're going to be asking, okay, I wasn't the victim here, Colonial was, but what would your advice to them be? Yeah, I think that this is really around threat intelligence in general, but it's specific to this point is that threat intelligence is a tool to augment your design and implementation of security controls. That's the whole purpose of it. So when you enlist an intelligence provider, you know, having them look up your name, you know, cyber criminals don't really work that way. That's not the value of it. The value of it is looking at cases like this where we can examine the chain of attack and see exactly what took place step by step and take learnings from that and design your controls to defeat the attack as soon as you possibly can. And it's okay if it doesn't happen in the first one, but here we're saying to deploy something like this ransomware, there's two, three, four, potentially five opportunities to disrupt this attack chain to not end up in this scenario. And that's really the value of having this type of information available is to dissect it map it to your needs and help you design controls and be proactive. Really, that's the goal. Brandon, once again, thank you for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. It's been great talking to you. Always a pleasure. Look forward to the next time. And hopefully this was uh, valuable for the listeners. Brandon Hoffman is the Chief Information Security Officer at the firm Intel 471. 